is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm Rachel Neal. And I'm James Ramsey. All festival long, we've been bringing you exclusive coverage of the talks and panels with some of the biggest names in film today. We've heard from the likes of Spike Lee, Courtney Love, and Amy Schumer about the projects that have fans most excited. On this episode, the director of True Detective Season 1, Carrie Fukunaga. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, this accretion of sensory experience and feeling. All right, all right, all right, Rachel. Gary Fukunaga will not be directing True Detective Season 2, which starts in June. Although it was pretty remarkable for one director to make every episode of a TV season, Actually, the only other case that I know of is Inside Amy Schumer, which we learned about in a panel the other day. And you can hear that panel at wnyc.org slash Tribeca. Kerry Fukunaga has said he's stepping down as the show's director to work on other film projects. And if they're anywhere near as good as his Jane Eyre adaptation, I'll be first in line. Do you think that because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, that I am soulless and heartless, I'm not speaking to you through mortal flesh? I'm not speaking to you through mortal flesh. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. <laughs> Next film, Jane Eyre 2, starring Matthew McConaughey? Maybe. Let's find out. Here's Carrie Fukunaga at the Tribeca Film Festival. Hi, I'm Paula Weinstein. I work at Tribeca at the Film Festival, and I'm thrilled to have you all here. Um, we have... James Seamus, about whom I need to say nothing except how great he is and what an admirer I am and fan forever. And Carrie Fukunagua, from Sinombre to Jane Eyre to True Detective, he's crossed all ways of making movies. He's an amazing, exciting, young, extraordinary talent, and I can't wait to see what he chooses next. So James Seamus and Carrie Fukunagua. Hello, everybody. It, um, it is my distinct pleasure to be the interlocutor and uh, kind of straight man for this guy uh, who knew me back when uh, I was employed and um, who I knew uh, back when, when he was as he still is, apparently, a very young, rising superstar in uh, American independent, uh, well, I should say, media uh, uh, now. So um, uh, even though we go way back, um, there are huge gaps in my knowledge of uh, Carrie's career and Carrie's approach to things because, quite frankly, it always changes. It's always a new challenge, um, and he's somebody who uh, I feel as if 20 years from now will still be at the beginning of another uh, uh, beginning of a career because everything that he does is a kind of a reinvention but it's a reinvention that started at such a high place even from the first steps and you know, we'll go back I, I assume through some of those uh, uh, early stages in particular you know, uh, your time here in, in New York and NYU and snowboarding not here in New York at NYU uh, and stuff like that so we're going we're gonna to chat for a little while uh, and then I'd like to open it up to you guys probably earlier than is the norm. We've got an hour together, uh, and usually they wait to the last 10 minutes, but I think after about half hour, 35 to 40 minutes, uh, we'll start to flag, the blood sugar up here will go down, and the lights will start to go up in there. And I believe the process for questions is that there's a microphone thing 
that will be uh, passed around, and we'll just uh, um, uh, and, and we'll take the questions to uh, the people who uh, grab the mic first. Is that correct? That's correct. So here's how it works. Um, so just to begin, Carrie, uh, uh, you are in pre-production again, um, and uh, you're going to be making a pretty big movie here in New York City. This is your first time shooting in New York, right? Except when you were a student, obviously. Film school, yeah. Yeah, so. and and has what's prep like for you now, having under your belt the the you know, three big projects and plus all the all the, the the television and shorter works, which also I'd love to talk about too at some point. Um, what does it mean to you? What does prep mean to you? And what do you know now that you didn't know when you were prepping your first uh, feature, Sin Nombre? Uh, I, I think there's this like tremendous amount of optimism in pre-production about like what you can accomplish, and you're like, oh, this will be easy. We'll get that in half a day, and we can move on to something else. And, and then uh, in your meetings, you're like, I don't even know why we're still talking about this. This is going to be easy. We got this. And then you get to set in your first films, you're like, oh, this is way more involved than I thought it was going to be. And I think True Detective definitely was a, because it was such a massive beast, uh, the pre-production aspect of that required meeting upon meeting. Uh, uh, John Mallard, the AD, was in the room here for that one. He loves a meeting. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it's always that, that that repetition. I'm probably similar to like learning lines for a play, you know, so that when you're on stage, it feels all natural and improvised. Those, those, those repetition of meetings so that everyone, every individual who's involved with your production understands what's happening inside your brain. I think that, to me, is what pre-production is now. Mm. Wow. And, and in terms of your own process and what you know of other directors uh, as you prep a movie, what's, what do, like, do, do your crew ever say, wow, nobody does it that way, or I've never had that approach, or that's interesting, you direct or, or you rehearse like that? Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, I would love to know what other directors do. Yeah, it's funny, right? Pre-pro. I've asked like Tim Van Patten if I can crash some of his sets to see how he does it, and you know some of the other directors that kind of take on massive amounts of work. Um, I don't know if I if I do things differently, other than um, the people here are probably better equipped to answer that, who are in charge of wrangling me. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know how to answer that one actually. And, and what about rehearsals? You know, how do you um, I mean, how do you bake that in, and how do you how much and how little? I think more and more less rehearsals. I think in film school, especially, we rehearse everything and really try to get a sense of what we're doing. And I think I had this concept in film school that I really had to know everything in terms of how it was going to be the uh, whatever was shot on set. I had to know everything ahead of time. And I think part of that is also just when you're using less trained actors or less trained crew members, it's better to like get certain elements as tied up as possible. But then when you start working with you know more qualified actors like Idris Elba or Matthew McConaughey, Fassbender, so on and so forth, you you can actually rely on just an intelligent conversation ahead of time, really getting into what I think the character is. They bring their concept of what it is. We meet in the middle. And, uh, and then I give them space on set to, to rehearse. And then when the whole crew sees what that rehearsal process is, then we can start shooting. Obviously, in much more involved scenes, like uh, the Warner and True Detective, we had to do a lot more pre-planning ahead of time and a, a kind of rehearsal process, especially for stunts, for safety. But uh, otherwise, I think most things are just kind of being worked through uh, the day of. Even, for example, all the interrogation stuff, which we did in two days, mm-hmm. Uh, one day, McConaughey did 29 pages of text in one day. Wow. 
sort of like a one-man show, you know. But you talk about the one-er. That's episode four, epic. The one shot, shoot yeah. out, insane yeah. thing. Everyone knows the one-er now, right? Yeah, okay, got uh, it. Just I, I guarantee sure there's were... people in this room who have not seen True Detective. Yeah, well, I, I think it's good to point out that there's uh, for the audience questions. We're only going to take questions about the last episode of the first season of True Detective. <laughs> uh, the rest of this is just filler until we get to that. So, yeah. It's, uh, um, so, so less and less rehearsal as you go. But, you know, some directors obviously shot list, you know, from Hitchcock famously and all the way uh, even to last year, St. Vincent, a, a small independent film, was completely shot listed beforehand. Uh, not just shot listed, but actually storyboarded. Um, how much of that do you do? I think um, on True Detective also, as opposed to, like, say, my last film, which was much more improvised and using non-actors, because of the amount of work we had to do every day and what we were trying to get through, you know, we basically had about 12 days an episode, um, which is faster than I'd worked previously to that. Uh, I wanted to get at least the shot aspect out there, again, in, in an effort to get everyone else in the crew inside of my head, mm. more than to say, how are these shots going to look next to each other? It's more, it's more like, well, in this frame now, you're seeing all the way down the road. Therefore, we're going to have to put period cars in there or, you know, they're going to have to just be aware of the scale of the shot. And then everyone whose departments are affected by a shot like that then actually know what's going on. Um, We could have definitely used storyboards in the last film. There was just no time because there was a lot of people surprised on set when they realized how many departments were affected by what we were doing. Uh, I mean, like, we basically built an army of 200-something guys and... We had weapons and, and basically war scenes and villages that had no idea it was about to hit them. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and now you'll be shooting in New York, and it's the same idea. It's the same know? idea. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, Except like, the locals here are like you know, combatants in their own right. So. <laughs> yeah. We're a very film-friendly town. So going back to um, even before you started... Uh, a director, and maybe at the same time, you have a lot of experience with the camera. You were a director of photography. You really know camera well. Um, how much does that inform when you read a script? Are you already thinking in terms of frame and lens and and that? And how? What? What? What do you bring as a director to the actual the camera? You know, your discussion with the DP that might be different from other folks, or just your own philosophy of that. I think, it, like Jane Eyre, for example, was the first film that I directed, my second film that I directed, but the first that wasn't my on-screen play. And it was, it was the images in that script that first carried me away. And then I was familiar with the story, but it was that script's visual entry into that story that sort of uh, got its hooks in me. Uh, so, so far I've worked with three different cinematographers, really. And um, all of them uh, have, I think, uh, the, the trait where the, we, we refer more to photographs than other films as references. Mm-hmm. And I think photographs are so much easier to communicate ideas because it's, it's a single frame and, you know, a good photograph uh, does so much more storytelling than the sort of the, the timeline of a shot, you know, that, that fourth dimension. Uh, so uh, we're able to, like, sort of hone in on our common sort of visual ideas for a story much quicker uh, than I would say, like, you know, using a movie reference. And um, I think just just having a solid grasp on what's required to do a shot also gives you a sense of like how ambitious that scene or day or shot might be mm-hmm. and you can then plan accordingly mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I remember um, reading somewhere you were talking about what struck you about True Detective one of the first things was the, was the light 
that kind of winter southern hemispheric light, or still northern, but the southern part of it. Mm -hmm. And you, you described it very, of course, now I've forgotten. Yeah, um, but, I probably said it better the first time. I try to explain. I'm not it. even going to go there. But what was interesting was that was the the first image was actually the quality, and a kind of scary quality of that blue light mm -hmm. um, that got you. In. What what got you? What, what what was the similar image that might have gotten you interested in your next film? And why don't you describe a little bit about the scary thing that's coming our way here in New York when you start shooting in a couple of months? Because uh, do people know what Carrie's next film is? No, so that's a. I'm in eight eight weeks away from starting uh, Stephen King's It. So, so. Uh, Just the word "it" is kind of yeah. creepy. It, I, it I, is kind of like the word "moist." I, you know? <laughs> there, there's certain words that are by themselves. Yeah. You just don't like to hear. Anyhow, but it's it. Yeah. It, it it'll is sell a lot of tickets. Yeah. And, okay, so, uh, yeah. I, I think for me, the, the image that I always see is the image I saw when I was 12 or so when I saw the miniseries, which is that white face in the sewer, you know, underneath that, um, you know, and that poor little Georgie being sucked down on the ground. Um, <laughs> so I haven't really gotten much past that part. Yeah. <laughs> Still stuck there. Pretty... Yeah. Yeah. There's a moist environment. Yeah, you got the it and moist all in one, yeah. one response there. Yeah. So, so going back, you... Um, yeah, you, you grew up in California. By the way, do people, are, are you okay with more technical questions? Or do you like the bigger autobiographical stuff? Technical still? Technical a bit? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stick the technical through the autobiographical. Um, uh, and uh, went to University of California, Santa Cruz. Pretty groovy place back then. Still pretty groovy, I'd say. I hear it's a party school now. Really? Well, they all are, I think, these days, right? <laughs> the culture's flattened into that space. Um, the Greek then, system was introduced while I was at Santa Cruz wow. and grades. It used to be just, uh, what they call it, uh, written commentaries or something. Yeah. For grades. Yeah, and Lord knows what's happened to the History of Consciousness program Probably, at Santa yeah. Cruz. Probably not much. But, um, Angela Davis is still there. She I is. Yeah. I, just, I, I, just, I, I, I had my picture taken with her and John Waters together three weeks ago, which is literally like the biggest wet dream for someone like me ever. <laughs> it, was like, it, was, it was like, what? Anyhow, and I'm in the middle of the picture looking so psychophantic. It's just like, <laughs> uh, this is really, it was my most retweeted tweet, which is not saying much, believe me, I'm not a social media person. So you get to New York and, um, and NYU, and, and there, you know, it's interesting because uh, at that time, there was a real documentary ethos, and, and especially with your ability with the camera, one would think, in fact, that's a real good match. Mm -hmm. So how did, that, how, how did you deal with that culture when you were there, and how did you find your way to the narrative side of it? Um, In New York? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I worked as a camera operator on docks for a long time, mm -hmm. even through film school, because it was the easiest way to like, make a little bit of money while I was here. But, um, and even, even doing the research for Sin Nombre, I was kind of applying what I'd learned in documentary to my research side of that. And... Uh, I think documentary was a great way for observing people, especially as a camera operator. You are just you're you know, usually in one camera shoots. You're required to cover a scene and and read people and figure out when you've got what you needed to move on, which was also very helpful later on in directing scenes and mm. when you had no time. And, and Beast, for example, applied a ton of single camera documentary, you know, ethics to to covering gigantic shots with like 200 extras when we were at 30 minutes left to shoot something. Um, but um, to the, the narrative side By the side end of, things, of the shot, there were only 100 extras left. So <laughs> it's easy to kind of go. They had nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you got them all trapped on top of mountains and stuff. Um, uh, but in terms of moving the narrative at, at film school, I think um, I was not really much of like a classic uh, cinema watcher before film school. I watched mm-hmm. Hollywood and classic Hollywood, but not so much, you know, the foreign masters. And so film school really sort of opened my eyes to a whole new world of filmmaking, especially, you know, my colleagues at film school. You know, this this is probably going to be too revealing, but one concept I had no idea of until I went to film school in my first class, my first semester, but was the concept of a character having to change over a period of time, which seems so basic in narrative. Like, of course, if you read books, they change, but this is like, they have to change? It just never occurred to me. I just thought they just changed because things happened to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's so American, though. Yeah. We can get over that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's wild. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more from Kerry Fukunaga. So uh, uh, you, you, um, you made a, a film at NYU that was, I don't think it was your thesis film even, right? That got a fair amount of attention out there. It was my second year film, Victoria so, Parachino. Yeah. yeah, and talk a little bit about how that happened. And... Um, we were... Anyone here NYU grad students? So you know, like in your second year, is the first year like you can make like a like a fictional short film with color, with dialogue, mm-hmm. or at least that's how it was when I was there. Right. And now um, in your second year, you have your own debt clock in your room. Yeah, <laughs> I teach at Columbia. It's just as bad. Don't worry. <laughs> I think the debt clock starts. No, you know, it's, it's it's delayed right until you finish school. No, now they yeah. now they have this private debt, and they yeah. just start the clock the minute you breathe on the piece of paper, looking at the number. Yeah, it's not a. This is not a healthy environment. For yeah. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the debt, the debt clock was was looming, um, and I had ideas for what I was going to do, maybe for a thesis film. But I'd read this story about these immigrants that were trapped in a trailer in uh, Texas, and uh, I'd just seen those nine eleven films that came out, and Alejandro Iñárritu had the his version of it was just all black mm-hmm. sound piece, and I thought, first of all, I love sound. Uh, uh, um, Walter Murch was one of the first people I ever met in the film industry. I got to observe him finishing the final mix on Talented Mr. Ripley. So the concept of sound storytelling had always really interested me, I think more so than the visuals, actually. And uh, uh, to do a short film in a theater, you know, in a dark room, where the audience had to become those immigrants in the trailer really fascinated me. So that was the story, essentially, that I wrote. And then my professors made me... Uh, as Boris Fruman, who is a famous Russian pr- professor that was there, said, I, I must shoot stop, which means I had to have an F-stop at some point in the movie and have a visual image. So that sound section got reduced to like a two- or three-minute section out of like the 10-minute short. But it was all sort of, that was for me the center of it, was how suffocating and, and you know, uh, horrifying it must be to be in a dark space like that. And it's so interesting that often for the great filmmakers, it's... It's the renunciation of at least one track of your sensorium. It's the turning down something. It's not seeing something or not hearing something that actually triggers the narrative motion and the emotional experience of of a story. You're constantly, it's what you don't see on screen or it's what you don't hear. It's what you, you that relationship is is so, so undernourished in our thinking about what makes a great movie, but it's often precisely when a filmmaker decides not to show show something. uh, that, that the real cinematic kicks in, you know? It's, it's fascinating. It's interesting in terms of, like, if the future of cinema is moving towards Oculus, 360-degree, choose-your-own-adventure storytelling, then where is the storytelling anymore? Mm-hmm. I mean, part of what you're saying, too, is, like, a narrative is you're, by, by choosing the direction the audience has to take in the plot, 
that you're also depriving them of, of that choice. Yeah, to a certain extent. Although I think that's a uh, that's something that people give up quite readily. Um, uh, uh, it, it's really interesting. Uh, um, and, and to me, I've always had that experience where you you go into a movie or you're talking about a movie uh, that you've seen, and people say, "Oh, don't don't get you know spoiler alert, you know, oh." And they, they always have that same phrase: "You gave the ending away." And I'm like, "So meaning you want to pay for it and not get it for free?" And there is that sense of submitting to a kind of regime of, uh, really, of submission to a narrative that, let's face facts. I mean, for those of you who saw, I don't know, you know Mission Impossible 4, how many people really thought that, uh, that Tom Cruise might die at the top of the building in Abu Dhabi? Like, oh, my God. And, you know, no, you know how it's going to end. But we... Where we, would he live? Yeah, I say, so, so, yeah, hand over the money. Um, and, and so there, I think that kind of game of investment in what you know but you don't, it's like that, it's really you're all Rumsfelds, right? You know, it's the, it's the, in this sense, the thing that he didn't say, the known unknown, right? You know, but you kind of pretend you don't, uh, is so important. And I think that's the same thing at the visual, like great filmmaking. Like, you know what it is, so you don't have to, you, you keep it unknown in a sense, to play with it a bit and get through that process. And I think you've been... I'm still trying to figure out what it is for, for, for episodic television because yeah. it's clearly not plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, there goes... There goes uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's definitely character, but it's yeah. like there's something where, like, it's, I think it's the concept that we know there's more and it's, we're only getting so much, so we're not completely satiated in that little bit, so mm -hmm. we can keep watching. Like, when you binge watch a show, they're not always based on cliffhangers or, like, some plot point you want to watch. You just know... I got like an hour before I probably really should be sleeping or I should have slept an hour ago, but like I can yep. do one more episode and then you go and then it's three in the morning. Yeah, right, whatever, yeah. Yeah, but, that, but that's... That, but I still can't figure out why I'm doing it. So yeah, it's, it's a weird, it is a weird experience. And people always say, and we, and we, we, we'll obviously get into that subject because I know it's been a big one for you personally and also I think in, in terms of the, the way in which the public engages with you right now, that transition from feature narrative to, uh, uh, to long form narrative. And the idea that they're, you know, in cinema, that the, the fact is, even if it's part of a series, that when you, when you go into the theater, right, when you, and you sit down in the chair, you know the movie's going to end. Like, that's part of the thing. It's like, you, when you start, you know the end. It has an end. Where on television, and even a little bit, I think, even your personal experience of True Detective, at the beginning... There wasn't really, and I don't think they. I don't think they could finish all the scripts. And you didn't. Did they know it was going to be this number of episodes? Or they were going to have another we knew it was going to be eight. You did? Yeah, okay. it was going to be eight. Yeah. We just shouldn't know what seven and eight were. So. <laughs> Six, well, seven, keep and eight. Guessing. <laughs> um, but there's that sense of not having an ending, like refusing an ending, and maybe. The, and if it's really good, you know, there'll be season two, right? So you're always the the investment is in fact to not end. And therefore, narrative structure really loses its coherence because if it was cohering, it would be signaling that, oh, here comes the end. When in fact, everybody's investment is like, ah, if this is good, it's going to keep going. I'll stay up longer and I'll binge forever. Right? I think, as opposed to, say, like uh, The Killing or even like other shows that I would watch in, in a binge sort of fashion, one thing that we were aiming to do, at least with True Detective, is that like, it's more like a miniseries. Like, the end would be, would be definitive. We wouldn't extend anything into a second season. It'd be done, and then the next season would be a completely different set of characters and, and a completely different storyline. And so the balance of the episodes had its own arc, which wouldn't, wasn't necessarily mirroring the arc of a two-hour film. It had its own sort of misshapen arc. Um, but uh, uh, 
that at least gave us a sense of like, oh, I can ramp up attention in episode four for sure. Five and six, things are going to tie together. Seven and eight, you know, it's all, it all comes to an end. You know? But in the, in the middle of that, you also had the, you had two separate narratives and you had two separate narrative structures, obviously, because you have the storytelling that's going on mm-hmm. as they're being interrogated. And so you have your, your wonderful guy sitting there just not buying it or buying it or maybe buying it, right? And that is in itself a kind of story, too. And you say you shot those in two days? All yeah, that? I'm trying to remember. I'm saying, because Hart went all the way till six, I think, and Cole was done by five. So one of them had a little bit more time mm-hmm. of interviews. But I'm pretty sure we did all of, can you verify this? Did we do all of Cole's in two days? Three days. Three days. All, but both guys. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Sorry. Um, that's insane. And how, how, how conscious were you when you were planning those days of the need or the lack of a need for kind of visual pizzazz inside those rooms? I mean, I, I, I completely threw that concept away right from the get go. No moving the camera, nothing. Unless there was, we're, we're moving out. Like in, in the script initially, it was all going to be played as if it was on a TV screen. Mm. Which I said, like, no, we gotta, like, we gotta get in the room at some point, yeah. you know. So we we move off that digital camera in the first episode, but otherwise, the camera doesn't move that much, um, and that was also that simplified in terms of the coverage. But then the other complication was that McConaughey was working as if they, this was just as he should. This was one moment, you know, a scene, even though for us there were there were scenes stretched across five episodes. Yeah. So he had his script, which is, was great for him, his own little arc. But then I had my, my sides, which were based on the real episodic scripts, and he'd be jumping around. I'm like, wait, which episode are you in now? Yeah. And, yeah. And so I had to like, kind of like, I took his scripts, and then I transposed my episode notes onto his script, so at least we could be on the same Yeah, because, uh, because cigarette and aluminum can continuity must have been a nightmare. Yeah. Like, Anytime I see that ever again in the future, I'm immediately cutting that out. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it was like, I was kind of an, I mean, I, this is how I watch movies, obviously. Yeah. I'm like, how do you keep track of the cans? You know, like, yeah. I, you just know. Anyway. Um, I, I look at the script supervisor, and she's like mixing up ranch dressing with carrots and stuff. And I'm like, Wait, are you noticing what's happening? <laughs> so, yeah, I got it. I got it. And the, the ash is just about to come off, like, half the time. It's like, one of those ladies of the slot machines, you know, in Reno with the cigarette. It's like, the ashes. The, okay. Those long tokes yeah. all started because our first day of shooting, you know, was the, like, McConaughey's like a health nut. He doesn't smoke. Yeah. And, like, you know, he was taking a few drags off the cigarette. And I'm like, let's just make sure we don't make this, like, you know, like a middle school girl, like, cigarette yeah. toke. And, and so he took that to, like, the whole other degree. And he, he cheech and chonged those things. Yes, know, and it's just like... <laughs> there, were, there were sinus passages that I didn't know existed where the smoke was coming round and out, you know. Yeah. It's insane. Um, so <laughs> I want to go back. Let's go, let's go back, though, to NYU and to uh, Victoria Chimpower. And, and the short obviously does so well and gets so much attention, Sundance, the Academy, uh, all that stuff. And then you're, you're now in, in a world. But how do you go from that world uh, to... The maybe the most dangerous gang in the world that you're hanging out with and just kind of going to make a movie with, and somehow Sinobre <laughs> starts to take shape. What was that process? Um, well, first, like I had to write the script, uh, some version of a script, right? And it, I, 
the first couple of years I was at um, NYU, there were a few a number of students that went to Sundance with their films, and there'd be interest, or they talk about interest in the feature that they could write. And then six months would go by, and they hadn't written anything yet. And I'm like, well, are you going to write the screenplay for this person who was at one time was emailing you? They're like, oh, I'm still working on it. And I, I kind of took that as a lesson of what not to do. And uh, you know, then a year later, those people weren't responding to emails anymore, and their kind of moment was done. So when I was there, I was sort of determined not to make that same mistake. And when the lab asked me if I had a screenplay, you know, I didn't have one ready yet because I hadn't been planning on making a screenplay about the short. Uh, but I had researched things that couldn't fit in the short, which was the trains, and uh, um, decided I'd write some fairly poorly executed version of that story. And it was more of a triptych that would end with the short film because that would at least solve 20 pages of script writing, you know, just put the short film in the future. Um, but I, um, one story is about a gang member and a girl, and another story is about a bunch of kids traveling from Honduras, and then basically just combined those stories after another year of research and, and made some nombre. But a lot of that was driven by the labs, turn something in, and then, uh, and then just by uh, that ticking clock of uh, debt. So um, I was able to get into the labs a year after I was there uh, for the, with the short at the film festival. And... Um, then I met you guys like about a week or two after that. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, as you know, the greatest piece of advice you get in film school is always, you know, make work uh, and write what you know from your own life. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly, as a Swedish Japanese American <laughs> snowboarder from Santa Cruz, you've just followed that precept completely through your whole career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> every film, right? Every film is. Just well, I am from Oakland, California. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not are from... Are you from Oakland or are you from Piedmont kind of Oakland? <laughs> I'm just trying to get a little, you know, the geography. I've lived in multiple neighborhoods. Oh, okay. Um, but no time in my life was I ever gangbanging them. Um, um, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're in that East Bay, the, the upper crust and the bottom crust cross yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a place where... where I, uh, economics does not divide people the same way it does, as it can in other places. Um, so the, the the concept of gangbanging, the the sort of the culture around it was not it was not foreign to me, um, and it wasn't really hard to apply. You know, some of the little things I'd, I'd had or interacted with as a kid into parts of that story. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, definitely was never never lived any part of that story, whether as an immigrant or as a gang member. It's interesting, then. It seems to me that there must be, aside from a genuine fearlessness that should be noted, duly noted and appreciated, just, I mean, uh, whether it's just reckless physicality of professional snowboarding or hanging out with, what is it, M65? Uh, uh, MS-13. MS-13. I always, yeah. I just, I don't know. The M-65, I think, was actually a bus. M-85 is a bus. Or, sorry, a, bu a gang. A gang. The, 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 the French... Electronic music gang. Ah, uh, okay, that must be it. I'm so <laughs> hip, I don't even know it. You know, um, that's got to be it. Um, but there's got to be something about that ability to look at the world with a camera on your shoulder and allow people to be who they are with you in the room. That must have been part of your own particular entree into your career. It seems to me that seem, yeah. seems absolutely apparent, and it, and clearly. Um, you get that from watching Sin Nombre. The level of performances from these folks, professional, unprofessional, non-professional, and you know, often the most professional actors are the most unprofessional, and the non-professionals are really professional. 
Um, but for them to be that, they need to trust that person behind the camera. I mean, they need to really feel that confidence. It, w it was really interesting to watch on this last film, which hopefully you guys will watch this coming up later on this year. The boy that we used in Beast of No Nation uh, was essentially a street vendor before he shot this film. Zero film experience, not much of even of an educational experience. And uh, uh, he was scouted uh, by Harrison Nesbitt, who is uh, A.V. Kaufman's son. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he um, cast our film for us. And so basically, he was a non-professional. We, we gathered a bunch of kids we thought had charisma and potential, uh, about 30 of them, into a little group in the hotel our, our crew was staying at, and would do these theater workshops in, in the basement. And we'd try out scenes that were kind of like near the script, but not exactly like the script, and improvise, and see if these kids could play the variety of, of emotions and, and, and sort of actions that are about to take place in the story. Uh, and they quickly kids are fast learners. So they quickly understood the concept. They quickly got um, the idea that the better they did, the longer they stayed in this thing. <laughs> and weren't back out. You know, like three of the kids were from the street. Like they literally, one of them lived on a, a trash pile in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Accra, in Ghana. And uh, anyway, so to watch this kid go a month from production, from knowing nothing about acting, to suddenly being chosen to be the lead in this film, probably still not wholly understanding what the story was about, much like Edgar, who was Casper in Sin Hombre, who was, until he saw the movie at Sundance, didn't actually, wasn't able to put together the concept of the scenes that we shot, right. you know? And so until he saw it together on the screen, he had no idea that he could do that. And so, uh, uh, but to watch Abraham, who's the boy we cast in this film, who was about 14, but he looked like he was 11, uh, uh, get to the point in one of our final weeks of production where we had another difficult one long take that he had to perform probably the most intensely that I'd ever asked him to do in the film and do it in a Warner and have to have like six or seven kids around him also perform and watch him become the leader amongst those kids and make sure they stayed in focus and didn't fuck up the shot so that he didn't have to keep doing this over and over again. And I didn't have to say anything. I gave almost no direction to those kids the whole time. Like minor things like blocking things like King Kong, you're getting in the way of the camera. You have to don't land there, you know, and, and, and other minor things. But otherwise, Abraham was guiding that shot. So within from one month to starting production to one month into production to turn into that, that kind of professional, as you were talking about, was pretty astounding to watch. It's amazing. Do you feel how, what, what legacy of that relationship with him, and Edgar, and all, you know, the, the non-actors who populate your films, but also populate the worlds that your films depict. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's a, quite a difference between, here we are in Tribeca Film Festival, and the world of Visa Donation, Visa Nombre. How do those relationships sustain or morph or where do they go? Where do people go? You have to, like, there's a reality to the fact that they probably are not going to have a, a career as an actor. Mm -hmm. So this experience is probably going to be a one-time experience. And to treat it as such and not to look at this as being like, oh, this is my step into becoming a rich person or my step into becoming famous or anything. It is this one thing. So whatever money you make, save that money, whatever if, we can, if you're really interested in acting, let's figure out how to get you into an academy for acting. Uh, for Abraham, you know, he's only 14. We have to get him up to speed with school. So right now, he's in a we put him in a boarding school back in Ghana yeah. so that he can kind of get up to a normal 14-year-old level of like, academics. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to... doesn't mean he's going to finish high school. It doesn't mean that he's going to go to university or anything. It just means that, like, you know, you, you've, you've, by nature of crossing into these people's lives... You're going to have, there's some responsibility there to maintain contact and be there, but you also, you're not adopting a child either. So, so. Got it. yeah. Um, 
We'll skip over uh, Jane Eyre because you're talking about Beast of No Nation. Um, yeah, I think uh, we all read, like, on the in Times Square, something about Netflix and $12 million and, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. There was quite, a, quite an announcement. Um, how, how are you, what's the story with that release? How's that going to work? And, the, and what are you excited about? What are, you, what, what are your trepidations? Um, it's the, the exciting part about it, like any of the ones that makes something, is that more people are going to see it than, than, say, for example, it had a traditional platform release on a small release company for a film of this subject, of this size. So you have a film that is basically, there's, there's not one white person in it, you know, it's not DiCaprio saving Africa. It's all mainly African cast. Well, he doesn't have to be in that movie. He already saved Africa. <laughs> he did. He did save us. It's true. And no diamond will ever have blood on it again. <laughs> um, but um, the, the, the movie is, is a, a, a very difficult subject. It's not, you know, it's like those, it, it could easily become one of those films where someone's like, oh, it's, that seems too serious. I don't want to watch that yet. Yeah. But I, I think that by nature of, of the force of Netflix being behind it, it'll be in people's faces enough. They're like, okay, I'll give it a try. And then I think once they start watching it, then hopefully they'll be you know, consumed by it. But um, the, the, the difficult part is, you know, the defining yourself as a filmmaker is that the concept of, of releasing on a, on a digital platform or an online platform at the same time as it's going to be released in the cinema really strikes the fear of God in your, in your heart that people are actually going to still go to the cinema to watch a film when if they're only paying $6 a month, month they could watch it for free on their laptops or you know, via their Apple TV in their living room. But it was designed to be a film experience in a group like this collectively with strangers in the dark and, and see the story. And I know, based on my experience at home watching movies and based on my experience watching films in the cinema, the experience in the cinema is 100% more immersive than it is at home when my phone's going off and I'm checking emails and I'm, and I'm sort of uh, 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 not really putting all of my attention into the story. And I'll miss things. And every shot that I put in there means something. So if people take it away to read a text message, they're already missing some element of the story. So you know, Netflix's big thing is like consumer choice. So as, as, as the audiences start to make that choice, and if they continue to make the choice to just watch online, then the, the cinema experience will be reserved only for comic book movies. And that is, in a way, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's the biggest democratic challenge for an art form that you have to ask the audience to, to be aware of the fact that they are just as responsible for the death of cinema as the people who make it. It's you. Got it. Um, but it is true. I mean, like, uh, and we, we look around the room um, at your own, you know, just look inside yourself at your own viewing habits. And, of course, you too, right? Yeah. Um, how much now of what we consume of both cinema and other is, you know, laptop up? Yeah. All right. So on a busy week in September, how many of you will watch a movie on a Friday night at home on your laptop? If it's a movie you want to watch that week? So you're home alone on Friday nights. You've just admitted it. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> All right. You felt for How that? many of you guys would go to the cinema? Which is, okay. This is a film festival audience. This is biased. Yeah. Well, totally I, biased. We, we set this one up. <laughs> you know, we set this one up. I mean, honestly. Thank you, though. Thank yeah. you. Please go to the cinema. I mean, it's, but it's, yeah. it's interesting, though. Uh, I, I look, the, the, the Netflix hype right now, and hype is often in our business reality, which is interesting. Um, uh, is a course that uh, by nature of hype it becomes reality. Yeah, you know if you're if you're good enough at it, um, yeah. and uh, these guys are. 
uh, is that the windowing is not the big issue, that the, really the, the, the tilt in terms of audience share for whatever your pure cinema, your cinema pur, that use the absolute, you know, that, uh, that special moment when you're in a dark room with a bunch of strangers. Although I don't know why you need to be watching a movie at that point. There's plenty of other things you can do in a dark room with strangers. Time, really. <laughs> well, but you even spent too much time in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, too much time in Berlin, it's true. Um, and um, uh, that the tilt in terms of audience share is already so shift, shifted over so hugely mm-hmm. to these other, uh, uh, other devices, televisions, uh, computers, et cetera. Um, so why not just let it happen simultaneously, right? Why not just let that happen all at the same time and just give people the choice? And obviously, there's the flip side of this, which is that you, you have this new image of you, the audience and the consumer, as this gigantic consumer baby who wants what he wants it, wants where he wants it, wants it when he wants it, he wants it now, right? Um, and free. And for free, exactly. Um, uh, and of course, it's not free. What you're giving up is precisely your exact geopositional target, all of your friends' addresses, uh, every porn site you've ever looked at, et cetera, et cetera, and the last time you clicked on a J. Crew sale ad. It's all part of a thing. So in every single day of your life right now, uh, 300 times a day, somebody is selling a data point about you to somebody else. Just the truth. And so the system is meant precisely to feed you into that machine to create the information about your viewing habits and your social network that can be turned to account uh, out there. So we're all part of that business. We're, part of, we're the candy that's being uh, dangled in front of you to get into that, kind of suck yourself into that world. Right? Trying to figure out what kind of marketing we'll learn from Beast of No Nation. <laughs> we really don't even want to track those people. <laughs> Actually, you do. You really want to, okay, oh yes, what time is it? Uh, hold on, we promised you a long, a long audience uh, time. Yeah, look at that. We got 18, 19 minutes. It's fantastic. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more from Carrie Fukunaga. Um, so great. So why don't we dive into audience questions? We're having going to have a hard time seeing you because of the bright lights. But I think, uh, can the person with the microphone make the decision as to who to hand the mic to? And therefore, I, I am like blemish free. It's not my fault that you didn't get asked a question. <laughs> Sir. Hi. Um, my question is, so, as you had kind of touched on um, with the Beast movie, um, it, I mean, I was wondering if you could answer how to market a non-obviously money-making idea to, like, film companies and that kind of thing, and how you go about marketing a non-traditional idea that isn't necessarily having made money in the past for a company so that they'll do that while at the same time maintaining your vision for the project? That's a tough question because, and maybe James could answer that better than I could, but my two cents on it would be that um, nearly impossible to get anything without a precedent financed because everything's based on an algorithm, really. Like they just punch in numbers, they know what they can make on foreign sales on it, plugging in this actor and that actor, even I'm talking about for like a $2 million film, you know, like which is. You know, the films are made for 100000 as well, but even for as low as a $2 million film, there's these algorithms, and if it doesn't fall into a certain category, it's almost, you know, nothing's impossible, nothing's, there's never a never, but it's very, very difficult, and I wouldn't even know, like, I couldn't even, I couldn't even know, like, who these days would be doing it. Like, even seeing Nombre at Focus probably wouldn't have been done two years later, just based on the crash of the economy, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's probably yeah. true, actually. Yeah. I can't answer the question because everything I've made has made money, and I just don't. I'm not interested in any <laughs> other stuff at all. Um, but look, the way the entertainment industry works, and by you know entertainment, that means we entertain you, is the, always the same thing, which is it's kind of the same thing. So you're very comforted to know that when you press play or when you buy the ticket, you're assured, and that you know the serialization even of the cinema, you know, part one, number two, number three, number four, number five, seven, is just broken a billion dollars at the box office last week, right? Seven. So uh, if it's something with a number after it, that's like awesome, right? Uh, so it's the same, and then you have to sell it. It's but it's different because they're like in Japan or something. Um, but there's also you know. like it's also you. Can, if you, you develop your name as well, so like if you have good stories and first they're a webisode or first they're something smaller and you just keep growing an audience, then then also there's that. Yeah. Your work then speaks for you. Yeah, and I think that the other thing is, uh, and then we'll move on to this question, is is the fact that within these highly sophisticated but in fact completely unknowable movements of culture and capital across cultures and borders right now, the way in which markets get segmented and which those segments get monetized is changing so quickly that the good news is that the people in the decision-making positions, A, they're going to get fired really quickly. Anyhow, there'll be somebody new to pitch to like next week because nobody, it's not the Goldman quote that was, nobody knows anything, which by the way, a lot of people actually know a lot, so don't, I, I just never thought that was great advice, like no one knows anything. But to a certain extent, everybody's looking for the next thing to know still and one way you can do the preface of your question was like, how do you pitch something that will make no money? Well, that's tough. But you, you can say is, how do I pitch something that the budget for which, and by budget I mean both the negative cost and the potential marketing budget, in the media through which you want to reach your audience, equals some market segment that may laugh or cry in a satisfied manner at the end of your entertainment. Okay. So, uh, for example, my career, 90% of it, is making women over 35 cry. And uh, that's the fourth quadrant. That's, been, that's put my kids through college. I bless you. Um, and, uh, Wait, is this and, like credit history? Can you go and log it and find out who yes, your quadrant yes, is? Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> um, and that's important to know. Like if you, if you walk in and say, look, this, these people identify with this kind of psychographic and this demographic and this graphic graphic, how are you? Because these things are constantly changing. I think I can affect them emotionally, and I think I can do it for price, that I can reach them. Then you have a story to tell. But, and the, but if the story is like, well, it won't make that much money, then probably not. Anyway, uh, yes? See, I'm, just, I'm not even looking. You're, you're somebody else is standing at the mic. Oh, there's a whole other mic over there. Wow. Okay. Hello? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, you were just saying how you let your work speak for you. Um, I was wondering, in the stories that you tell, what attracts you to the films, the scripts that you've chosen or written, um, and then how, by the way that you direct, um, is there a feeling that you want your audience to leave with um, that speaks for you as a director? I don't know if there's one thing overall. Like, it's like when you go to dinner over the course of the week, you know, you might lean to more Italian or Japanese over the the course of the week, but generally it's kind of whatever your appetite is. Obviously, for a film, it's a, it's a much longer commitment, so you got to really like that Italian food. But um, so maybe that metaphor doesn't work. 
Maybe it's more like a relationship. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there's a side where, like, uh, there's an image that grabs me or uh, a character's dialogue. Or, there's just elements in there where I think there's, if it's not my own screenplay, that's something I think is, is masterful about it. Um, if it is my work, I, 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 haven't, I haven't got done enough yet where I think I can analyze that on a global scale of what it oh, is. Oh, I can. I can. I'll volunteer. <laughs> I, according to, to, to Seamus, I, I like to, to show people entering and leaving rooms. It's true. <laughs> That's actually true. But the, I think the other thing, and look, and this is the genius of Kara Fukunaga and why I think you're, you're finding your voice and the voice that's resonating with so many people is that almost every other filmmaker who has tried to create a career that would be now you are the envy of uh, and the emblem of um, has tried to do it by finding heroes and heroines and like th they have certain delimited features. And I think Carrie has always looked at the person in the corner of the room or the person in the back in the kitchen cooking or the delivery guy or that person that nobody's paying attention to and realize that there is a center of a universe that is so rich and huge and then usually connects with people who would never be cast or thought of or, and even Jane Eyre I think falls, we didn't get a chance to talk about Jane Eyre, but really that I think Bronte was that person also and was the person who gave voice to those people at that time. And uh, this is already with three features and some great shorts and by the way, some other stuff that's the, even your advertising often does this, you know, Whitman and those people. Uh, who else does that, right? Who else is like, actually, the camera's over here on our hero, and then Carrie just goes over here, and then that person walks over, and for the rest of our lives, we're following them, and they're just, it's amazing. So I, that's my shtick for you. Cool. I'll yeah. take that. Okay. I'll steal that. All right. Oh, look, we have another, we have another thing. Hi, yes. Carrie. Hi, James. My name's Alexandra. Um, I have a question about True Detective, and I will try not to spoil it for any of y'all who haven't seen it. Uh, you know what? This is spoiler <laughs> alert free. Like, you, I mean, no, you, anybody can. <laughs> um, but I have a question about a scene in particular. Towards the end, we have the two police officers, and they're driving in the cemetery, and they talk to the killer. Although at that point, they don't know that he is the killer. And the camera almost seems to be afraid to kind of move in towards this guy because now the audience knows he's bad. So I was just wondering if you have a different approach to the camera work in the beginning of True Detective when the audience doesn't necessarily know what's happening and when the end, when they're kind of starting to put it together and realizing what's going on. Hmm. That, that, was, a, that was a scene that um, you're talking about when then he speaks to the camera. Yeah. We've been here a long time, like that whole thing. Oh, wait, uh, he's the killer? <laughs> <laughs> um... There was no specific philosophy to the camera work necessarily changing, uh, but the tricky part is we had to reveal something on his face in that shot, which is always kind of like tonally tricky because you don't want to you don't want to end the episode like dun 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 dun. So uh, that was supposed to be the last shot, and instead I chose the wide shot that kind of pulls out. Um, but um, uh, the last two episodes are tonally a bit different from the rest of the show, and uh, you we made you make certain you're obligated to make certain choices to serve that tone. So uh, it, I wouldn't say it's philosophically different than what was the beginning, but yes, it is. It was a choice. I don't know if I answered your question. And you really don't want to end it with da da da. You want to end it with wah wah wah. Come on, that's always better. All right, I guess we're being fair and going the other, but I don't see. Oh, there's there's a okay. Hey, <laughs> I'm sorry you missed that dinner in Rome. So so sorry. 
Um, he worked with us. He was one of our interns um, in Africa. Do you think uh, it's going to be a milestone bond because it came out on a platform and not straight to the to the theater? Visa donation? Um, did you call it bond for short? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, um, you know, it's it's when the articles start coming about, out about it, I, I think people are going to watch it as a as a benchmark to see again how people respond to it. Not only I think in audience participation, whether it be at home or in the cinemas, but also industry recognition of it or not. Because whether you believe in awards or not, what uh, the idea of honoring a film like that, which could potentially be considered an online film, albeit having a theatrical appearance. Uh, uh, there's still, I think, a lot of old guard who like to consider cinema something that only exists in the theater. And those those old guard Academy members watch 70% of the films they vote on their screeners that they get for free. Yeah. But it was in the cinema at one point. So, um, will it be a you know something a touchstone or something? I I don't know. I think only time will tell. And it's hard because again, the hype and the reality. Uh, we read last. Your, all that great publicity around a, a wonderful film and a great success for the distributors at Radius um, at the Weinstein Company. And of course, it was like, oh my God, Snowpiercer came out day and date on thing. It's a whole new thing. How you guys have invented a whole new business. And you're like, yeah, what about Margin Call two years ago before that, which did the same thing and got to $7 million? And nobody had seen that thing coming. And, uh, but Margin Call, I'm sure a lot of you guys saw, is a really a wonderful independent film uh, made here in New York. And it was very interesting, the dynamics on that. Because at the time, it was video on demand, right? So it was pay-per-view. Mm -hmm. And it was in theaters and art houses. And what they found was, at that time, was the older audience, which was going to see it at Lincoln Plaza, uh, had no idea about, like, they didn't even know how to use the remote to get to pay-per-view. So they were, like, going to a movie. And all the younger people were like, dude, yeah, it's three ninety nine. Oh yeah, let's I, see it. I wonder if it's a difference too, because Margin Call could still be considered a drama, whereas Snowpiercer could be considered genre. And was but it follows Dan Day as well? I think so, or or close to it. Does anyone know the answer to that? It wasn't. I think it is. It had yeah. theatrical before. But it will. They usually they usually yeah. go. Oh, so we're dating it. We forgot to announce it, and now it's going to be this. Whatever they did. Yeah. Even Snowpiercer was. They were off a few weeks, but but it's changed now. The old folks actually know how to use the remotes. They've learned. Um, so the dynamic the is different. The kids have programmed it for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, question over here. Remember that. Okay. Um, I have a question about uh, your upcoming project on Stephen King's It. Um, I was wondering what initially attracted to you to that project. Is it just that you um, had seen it you know, when you were younger and liked it? Um, are you trying to move towards more horror and science fiction? Um, and additionally, uh, how closely will it, it adhere to the book and the original work? Um, it's well, <laughs> I can't give away too much, but I would say in terms of the, the, the choice, uh, someone asked earlier about the themes. I mean, I guess the only continuing theme is uh, that children die in all my films. So if you want to consider the way Pennywise sort of like took off children for a while and then finished with this giant spectacle of, of, of death and mayhem, then I guess it would sort of cap off my children dying series of films. And hopefully after that, you know, I'll move into much more pleasant, you know, fair. Yeah. <laughs> yes, wherever the mic it may be. Okay. Mr. Seamus, carry on over here. 
Oh, hello. Hello. Uh, my question goes back to an earlier topic in the conversation about getting into the shared consciousness of your crew so that you're in the same place, creating the ease of the, the shoot. And one, uh, one, crew, one person I never hear anyone talk much about is the production designer. And I wanted to know what kind of relationship you like to have with your production designer. Is there a unifying metaphor that you work on? Um, the mise-en-scene, what is, what is it that, uh, how do you like to work scene by scene, be only pre-production, that creates the, that feeling? I, I love the production designers part of uh, the sort of pre-production office, usually, like, uh, across the board, because all the photographs are up on the wall, every bit of like potential reference, references that you've never even thought of before, because they've just, they've combed images from all over the place, on the wall for a set, for a scene, for a character, and it, it's actually a really great place to come up with new ideas even, or like, oh, you know, we saw this great location scouting today, maybe we can combine these ideas, and it becomes sort of like a sponge. So, um, uh, you know, a really a sponge in terms of a creative center. So the relationship is really just based on in the, in the, the sort of the, the hiring or casting process of that production designer, somebody who shares uh, your vision, and you know that by the feeling, by your gut feeling, by looking at the images they present. And again, like I said, a still image is the quickest way to find out if you're seeing the same thing. And and then it just expands from there, and it becomes more like a, a sort of a rapid fire bit of excitement as you kind of pull more and more images that hone in on what you want to do. And and then then reality sets in a bit about what you can actually afford to do. But um, you know. Uh, when you're talking about True Detective, and the one of the first things I, I read in the, the first screenplay initially was the church on the plains where they find that painting on the wall. That was in the first script initially. And I loved that, that image of that sort of the bones of that church you know, on, uh, on the, the sort of like flat plain at the end of the day in that sort of dead light. And so um, the, when we were looking for a location, for example, for that church, we never found one in Louisiana, so we built that church. And when you have images that are so precise, you can actually really transpose those images to reality pretty quickly. You know? I think my favorite part of that question was you, you, said, you called him Kerry Son. I'm going to call you that from now on. I think we have time for one last question. So whoever is holding the mic? Kerry. Um, the last three. Kerry Son. Kerry Son. Thank you. <laughs> the last three episodes of True Detective were uh, groundbreaking. You guys obviously struck a chord with a lot of people. You crashed the HBO Go. Um, you had people hanging on at the edge of their seats. When you say that you didn't know what those three episodes were, were going to be, what, is that, what does that mean? It means it's absolutely frightening because you're starting shooting and you haven't had a chance to plan anything yet. And so we basically planned in pre-production for True Detective just the first four and a half episodes. I think we got pretty deep into five. Um, I guess the first five episodes, really. But six, seven, and eight basically had to be planned while we were shooting. There was no hiatus. So it just meant like you, we had to double up our work. And we were before... Shooting, we, a shooting day, we go scouting. At lunch, we'd have production meetings. After shooting, we go see new locations. And you're already dealing with a 12 or 14 hour day. And then at night, I'd go visit the editor to try to get the first couple episodes locked up. Saturday is more scouting or tech scouting. It just meant you just you did what you would have done normally in eight weeks on the, the top and ends and bottoms of days. It was, it was a little bit insane. Um, a little bit. A little bit. Kerry, it has been such a pleasure and honor to share the stage with you, and thank you guys for hanging out with us. Thank you. Thank you guys. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, three stars of YouTube, Vine, and Snapchat.